Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to share my podcast conversation with my friend, Mike Blanche, who is an expert in the alcohol and substance abuse recovery industry in Philadelphia. Mike has been clean and sober for 26 years. High five to that. He's a co-founder of Ethos Treatment. They have a location in Westchester, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. At the Ethos Treatment Centers, Mike is on the front line each and every day as he helps to prevent alcoholism, substance abuse, and many other forms of rising addictions, such as the addictions that are developing from the impacts of technology. Mike also spends his time giving prevention talks at schools throughout the Philadelphia area. So throughout our conversation, Mike was kind enough to share his personal journey in overcoming addiction, which is an inspiration to others that recovery is possible. We continue on to talk about the creation of Oxycontin in 1996 and how it triggered the deplorable opiate epidemic that we have been fighting the past decade. Lastly, Mike talks about the major effects that technology is having on our culture. Given that we are exposed to technology in some capacity throughout every day, whether it's email, our cell phones, or iPads, Mike offers different ways we can build a healthy relationship with these devices. Also, I interviewed Mike's wife and my friend, Caroline Fenkel, in the fall of 2017. Her podcast was one of the most downloaded podcasts I've ever done. I've got a tremendous amount of respect for Caroline and Mike who are fighting every day to help people. Definitely give their podcast a listen if you get a chance. Thank you so much. Welcome, Mike, to the podcast. Thanks. Um, and for those tuning in, I will give a little bit of background on my relationship with you. So Mike's wife, Caroline, is one of my best friends since I was born. She always says since we were zero. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> in fact, Caroline, I think, was my fifth podcast guest. And if you haven't listened to my podcast with Caroline, I strongly urge you to. It is one of the top five downloaded podcasts I've ever done. She's a rock star. Yeah. So she was kind enough to not only tell us her recovery story, but she also provided a tremendous amount of valuable information on addiction, the opiate epidemic, and how we can steer children um, free from drugs and alcohol. Um, anyways, so I was very excited when she met you, and you guys got married in 2016? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because you're truly one of the kindest people I've oh, ever met, so I have to let people know that. Um, and you guys have also been very generous with me business-wise, too. So mm-hmm. I helped Caroline when she found her space, Center for Family in Malvern yep. a couple years ago and then we're sitting in Westchester in your new space yep. in a Hayden building yep, yep, yep. and then we did a deal downtown and um, so I had to do a quick plug in for Hayden Real Estate Absolutely. too a little bit very so. happy that you guys are here so thank you yeah. that's why I'm here <laughs> and anyone tuning in um, my full time job is the leasing at Hayden Real Estate so if anyone's looking for office or warehouse space definitely reach out Hayden properties are the best <laughs> um, alright so enough about me so I'd love for you to take over and provide the listeners with a little bit of background information sure. on where you grew up and went to school. Sure. Uh, so I grew up right outside. Uh, first, I want to say thank you for having yeah. me on the podcast. It's a great opportunity to talk, Definitely. and I'm an open book. So I really like to you know, walk through anything with you. I grew up right outside of Philadelphia in a family, mm-hmm. uh, a pretty healthy, wealthy family of success in their own right. Uh, my parents, uh, my mom was a teacher at Villanova University. My dad ran his own company as an insurance agent. Okay. And my sisters are pretty successful in their own right today. My sister's a lawyer, and my other sister is an engineer in New Jersey, and uh, they're both great individuals. And then I was the third. Mm-hmm. I came along, and, and um, I, I uh, grew up in a house where alcohol was available. Alcohol was a, a part of growing up years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I grew up uh, getting exposed to drinking pretty early on in life. Okay. And uh, I went to St. Aloysius Academy, mm-hmm. um, and then I went off to St. Joe's Prep High School. 
uh, both great institutions, great, great schools where I mm -hmm. learned a lot, but the education beyond the classroom is what I call it. Uh, I got exposed to using substances way early on. I was this tall. I was this lanky when I was a kid. And so I was a freshman playing in bands. I was involved in music. Okay. And I was a freshman in high school where I was playing with kids that were seniors in, in high school. Um, and I was a pretty good drummer. And I was exposed to the Philly nightlife scene right away. Right. So as a result, I got exposed to kids partying pretty much right away. And uh, by my freshman, sophomore year of high school, I was exposed to kids drinking and using substances mm -hmm. on a regular routine basis. Um, my parents were older, so mm -hmm. I was able to get away with a little bit more. They, um, my sisters were perfect in a lot of respects, so okay. they did so many things right. Right. By the time I came along, they didn't know what to do with me, so I flew under the radar. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to get away with a lot, and I was drinking and using a lot of other chemicals in passing. My story is I started with a drink okay, and I ended with a drink, but I pretty much did everything in between. Okay. Uh, and so, so drugs too drugs, and everything. Okay. Pretty much, you know, yeah. and, and, and the culture at the time, um, there were substances available. Mm -hmm. And so what um, year is that? Just out of curiosity. So high school years was 87, 87. to 90. Okay. I graduated in 1990 from St. Joe's prep. Okay. Um, by the time I graduated high school, my family and I, my parents and I were struggling a lot. I was getting fights a lot with my mm. parents. Um, they were really concerned. They were taking me to doctors and therapists thinking that I had more depression and mental yeah. health issues, which was a common thing at the time. They, they were looking at me more having, having mental health issues than substance abuse. Uh, and, and they tried their best to try to help out. Right. Uh, but by the time my freshman year of college, um, I'd gotten into Villanova part-time Okay. And I moved out um, in an apartment King of Prussia. And those couple years out, outside of uh, high school, I really got into using all the time. And okay. it was really problematic, meaning I was drinking every night, using every night. And yeah. uh, from an addiction standpoint, my life centered around getting the next substance. And I had okay. no idea that I set out to do it. Right. So by the time I was 20, I was pretty much a daily consumer of substances. I had already been kind of exposed to recovery. I, I was kind of stipulated to like an outpatient mm -hmm. rehab when I was in high school. Okay. Um, and by the time I was 20, I'd bounced around having problems, car accidents, mm -hmm. legal issues, a couple of arrests down the shore in Seattle City. Right, right, right. I was right. a Seattle City kid getting in trouble down there. And so there was enough flags that there was enough on the radar. And it was actually a really good friend of mine, this guy Bobby, I was in a band with he actually walked away from it all mm -hmm. at age 22. He actually got sober. He stopped using. Okay. And I was like, we were all in a band mm -hmm. and we were pretty successful. And I was like, why is he walking away from this lifestyle? Right. Um, meanwhile, I couldn't hold down a job. Meanwhile, I was not showing up to, to events that I was supposed to be at. I mm -hmm. was not showing up to life. Yeah. And I really didn't have that many friends because my drug use had taken off so much. Right, it was right. all centered around the next high. Yeah. And uh, so when Bobby, uh, Bobby's father was sober and Bobby got sober and he got involved with recovery, uh, I kind of saw that from a distance mm -hmm. and his life kind of turned around. He, he go back to school. He went back to school and I saw some of his life change a little yeah. bit. I thought maybe that could be an option for me. And that was my first exposure to real recovery. Okay, yeah. And so when I asked, um, I kind of hit a bottom this one time. Uh, I reached out for help. I went to rehab. Mm -hmm. It did. It took me a couple of rehabs to get sober. A lot of yeah. families come to me and say, "Well, they've tried a couple of times." Yeah. And it does take more than a, one attempt to right. stop using a lot of times. And and so I went to one rehab when I was twenty. 
and it didn't kind of stick. Right. But I still reached out for help. I still knew that my friend Bobby was doing it. Mm. So I reached out for help again that April, uh, and that was April 2nd, 1994 is my sobriety date. Okay. And that's when I got sober. And I reached out to Bobby. 1994? Okay, got it. And then he helped me get to a meeting, and I went to a meeting where it was at St. Joe's University. Okay. Where at the time there was hundreds of kids that were getting sober. And it's funny, uh, it's cyclical. Now, on a Friday night there, they have 100 kids that are all sober, and there's a big collegiate recovery process and program there and a couple other universities I can talk about. So at the time, that helped me to see, like, young adults can get sober. I was 21. Okay. And uh, I term, I, I didn't turn my life around by myself. I had a host of people that took care of me. I had a host right. of family members. And I, I moved home okay. uh, to get sober. And um, about nine months into my sobriety, uh, my mom, who worked at Villanova University, yeah. said, why don't you take a class if you're going to be home? Uh, I saw my sister at the time was a nurse. She moved, went on to be a, a lawyer. And I saw her be a nurse. I was like, yeah. oh, I'll go back to school to be a nurse. Right. And uh, I want to help people. And I was right. nine months over wanting to help people. Okay. And I thought one of your questions was about how did I get into the field or yeah. you know, that, that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. So about nine months over, after kind of working on myself and, and, and trying to change my life, it was hard to get sober, really stop using. And I can explain that more if you want. But I saw her turn her life around um, by getting into the nursing field. My sister was a great example, so I was like, I want to help people and mm-hmm. do that too. So when I went back to school, I failed organic chemistry. Okay. And I was like, oh shit, I don't yeah. know if I want to be a nurse. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and I actually, I volunteered when I was okay. about a year and a half sober at uh, Delaware County Hospital at a detox okay. unit. Um, and that was my first exposure to helping out people professionally. Right. Uh, about a year, year and a half sober Okay. Um, at Delaware County Hospital. Um and so at the time, and still to this day, you can do what's called a commitment by going to an institution okay. and getting exposed to what rehabs and programs are like. If you're a person in recovery, they ask people to come in and tell their stories, sure, just yeah. like I did for yeah. 30 seconds there. Okay. And I was telling my story to a kid, and I helped him talk him into going to rehab. And my first boss in the field was this guy, Jimmy, said, you should come back next Sunday. And I did. And the next thing you know, three Sundays rolled around, and the next thing okay. you know, months go by and I'm into my career. Yeah. So it was by volunteer work okay. that I got You're into exposed to it. Uh, this field of, of being a therapist. Okay. And then I went back to school at Villanova is where mm-hmm. I got my undergrad. Okay. And then I went on to get my master's degree at Brimar College okay. in school of social work and I have a license in social work. Got it. And uh, and I've been doing this about 24, 23 years. So okay. I've been sober 26 years. Okay. I've been doing High five. Much. That's <laughs> cool, yeah. <laughs> and then I've, I've continued down the path of, of this field and I've worked at all levels of drug and alcohol treatment, and yeah. I also past 10 years do a lot of prevention talks, Okay. where I go into schools and help schools with prevention work. Okay. Prevention, I see as a part of treatment, is talking to kids about uh, substance abuse and mental health issues, yeah. and how they can get caught up in it early in life. Right. Um, and then I also do treatment, where I actually help okay. people on an individual basis and group basis, and you know okay. that my work has kind of expanded into program yeah. development. Okay. Uh, so I helped develop a program called Ethos in Philadelphia region. Yeah. And um, a company called Therapeutic Alliances and Outpatient Division as okay. well. So Very I cool. Get into that. So, yeah. So I apologize. I kind of fly through my story. I don't know yeah, if that no, 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 that was good. Yeah, that was perfect. That stuff, yeah. Is that too much? Or? Um, I guess one question I have is, I know I was at an event with Caroline 
a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, they say that addiction is almost like a disease that you have sure. to maintain and treat on a daily basis. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we'd love to learn what you do on a daily basis, especially for someone that might be tuning in that's struggling with it. Sure, sure, so sure. So how do you treat it on a daily basis? So Caroline's amazing at identifying one of the core pieces of addiction is isolation. Okay. And feeling isolated and feeling disconnected is definitely how I felt at the end of my drug use, at the end of my drinking. Okay. So getting out of isolation, it took one person, my friend Bobby, to help symbolize like how to get out of that. And, and I really felt close to Bobby. And if it wasn't for him, like he introduced me to Pete or Sean or all these other guys, Tom. Yeah. And the next thing you know, I had, you know, a crew of people that I can really feel not alone. Okay. Not isolated and, and feeling a part of, and not feeling feeling, not feeling like I have to have everything figured out. Right. And so yeah. being able to ask for help, mm-hmm. uh, being able to connect to other people and, and ask mm-hmm. like, how do you get through this without using a substance? Yeah. How do you deal with, from getting a bank card, uh, <laughs> a bank, to to getting a loan to to, yeah. to getting a job, to dealing with an emotion mm-hmm. uh, like dating you know yeah. when I had a year sober I talked about how to date and how to talk about relationships with guys and right. sobriety and learning how to do it right right as opposed to the joke was in addiction you kind of take hostages when you're drinking yeah yeah and as opposed to in, in recovery you have real relationships with okay. other people like healthy relationships right so was, uh, for me in early recovery I did therapy I, I had a psychiatrist that I went to I saw a therapist for a while, but also uh, 12-step meetings. And okay. so I really got exposed to 12-step and having a sponsor. Yeah. It's kind of like a mentor. Right. It's kind of been there, been through it a lot. And, and usually sponsors are not professionals that are just people that have kind of been down the road of recovery that kind of share their experience. Okay. And then meetings, 12-step meetings are, are voluntary. Right. Um, and AA is, is one of the foundation ones that I find is worse for me. Their language is kind of antiquated and okay. kind of old school. But right. You know, if I can get past some of the ling- lingo, it really the core recovery principles of uh, one day at a time, yeah, uh, and and a lot of life skills management, a lot of uh, relationship management comes mm-hmm. out of recovery. Okay. So I go to the original source of AA and twelve step. Right. So I go to meetings. In my early recovery, I went to meetings every day. We're okay. lucky in the Philadelphia region, uh, and if you're listening, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is nationally known for having a great resource of recovery okay. in every part of the five-county region. Right. You know, from Center City, Philly, out here to Chester County, where we're sitting, there's over you know 300 to 400 AA meetings a day in this area. There's right. over 95 NA meetings a day in the area. So the resources of classic 12-step meetings, and they've grown beyond that to smart recovery, okay. uh, to refuge recovery, to Dharma recovery, to, to Mars recovery. So there's all these different recovery orientations that are available in the recovery okay. community yeah uh, so in early recovery i went to daily meetings and now i go to like two meetings a week okay i'm in daily contact with guys right uh, as you know my wife's in recovery we yeah. share the language of recovery right um so that helps as yeah. well but we're we're for pre- professionally too you know there are years where i've been in therapy more and for the years in recovery and in my work, I'll do daily supervision or weekly supervision as a therapist. Okay. So I'm always educating myself. One of the lines I liked that came out last year is if you're not learning a weekly thing, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, yeah. you're not growing. And, yeah. I, and I like that kind of high five success of like continuing to grow and yeah. learn. So learn I something think new every day. That's, yeah. that's it. That's yeah. what I really like to aspire to. For sure, to yeah. So. Um, and one question I have too is the intervention process. So anyone tuning in that might ha- know someone that they think is experiencing an issue? How, how do you go about it? 
So there's simply like, uh, there, there's such a gamut. So like, okay. if not you, who is a line I say every time? You don't want to offend them or... Well, well, there, to give you an idea, like I just gave this talk the other day to a seventh grade class actually okay. at, at a local school. And I, mm-hmm. I won't say the school, but this kid asked a very sincere question, like, what kind of words can I say to somebody in my family that if I think that they might have a problem? This came right. from a seventh grader. Okay. Uh, and I said simply this, I sit across from adults every day of the week as a therapist that'll say to me, you know, I'll ask like, when was the first time you thought you had a problem? Okay. And they say, my junior year prom date said to me, why do I have to drink like that? Now they right. didn't maybe stop drinking then, but their junior year prom date said something to them. Right. And I say to the seventh grader and I'll say to anyone listening, it's okay to say something like, Hey, have you ever thought about, you know, stopping drinking? Have, have you ever thought about looking at your drink? Have you ever thought of evaluating your drink? Yeah. Asking inviting questions. Okay. You know, asking them to reflect on their consumption of substances. Right. Is the greatest intervention. Yeah. And a simple question. And if not you, who, meaning your person is, is right across elbow to elbow with you, is, is a very powerful intervention alone. And that is simply uh, the first line of defense. Okay. To... Uh, the gamut to the other extreme is actually a professional interventionist. Yeah. You know, so I introduced Got it. Pat Dowling in the hallway. Right. That's all he does. That's all he does. Interesting. And, and okay. so there are many interventionists in the community, but Pat's one of the best. He meets with families every day. And okay. He, he preps them and, and he sits with them and he helps them write letters and, and to okay. really prep them and strengthen their kind of boundaries. Right. About what they're willing to take on or not take on in their own homes. Okay. Uh, so there's professional interventionists that work either independently like Pat okay. uh, or that work for institutions or residential programs that help kind of help the person get into treatment. Okay. Um, so programs uh, like Karen Foundation or RCA or Miramont have their own interventionists on staff. Got it. Okay. So if you're ever in need of help, um, yeah. you know, you can always call these residential programs or programs like Ethos or Independent. So we can kind of independently evaluate the family or independently evaluate the individual to see what type of program they could benefit from okay. going to. Yeah. Uh, and that's awesome. And so having an evaluation of sorts is even an, an intervention into itself. So right. getting somebody in to talk to a therapist, getting somebody in to talk to somebody. Yeah. And, and what's called the invitational style okay. is a type of intervention if you're, Got it. If you're looking for it. So. There's a classic style of an intervention that is like a, a closed style um, that's the most uh, intensive where the family's prepped, they write letters, yeah. and they present to the individual if you go to rehab or else type of thing. Okay. But then there's also that middle ground invitational style sure, of intervention. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the simple statement of just saying something to the person. Right. You know what I mean? So exactly. There's, there's, yeah. there's all different types of interventions. Yeah. A lot of times people hear the word intervention and think it's like the show. This formal thing. Yeah. It's, it can be so many different dynamics. Okay. Interesting. So, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Same so thing sure. with treatment. A lot of times people think it's got to be residential or else. Okay. But there's all levels of care. Of treatment, okay. So it doesn't have to be just going to rehab. Got it. Okay. There could be, you know, our program ethos is intensive outpatient where people come three, four nights a week or okay. three, four times a day. Right. Or I'm sorry, three, four times a week during the day or evening to help interrupt their relationship with training. Okay. Or even outpatient therapy. Yeah. Outpatient once a week or outpatient individual or group therapy. Okay. Is a form of effective treatment. Got it. Yeah. So that's that's the other premise. As All well. good stuff. Yeah. And one thing you talked about before is the isolation. Yes. How that leads, you know, fuels a little bit. Yes. And I was listening to my podcast with Caroline last night. Mm. This is uh, to get more familiar with everything. And she's 
can you talk, I don't know if you know about the study, like the rat study, oh, where yeah. with the cocaine and uh, sure. like, you know, and how that shows that like people isolated will tend to more go towards. So the, the backstory was okay. that when they did research around cocaine, yeah. they, they looked at making sure that the, the rats and what they got addicted to, the cocaine, how they got the depressed rat is they isolate the rat number one. Okay. And so how do you get somebody depressed? You isolate them. Okay. Isolation and not having other involvement of other activities. So right. the, the, the participants in this initial research were not involved in activities and they were isolated is a huge component of isolation. Right. Then they were exposed to this highly addictive substance called cocaine. Okay. And they, of course, wanted to go to that substance as opposed to the water. But the rat study showed what they did is they followed up with, and the rat uh, uh, park study is they showed that if they had the rats that were able to have fun activities, other outlets, yeah, like literally uh, things going on, um, that the rats could then um, have other fun activities. Yeah. So it basically showed that like, one of the principles of recovery is called the needs met principle. And okay. this notion is if all your needs are being met, if you're involved in a healthy relationship, have yeah. healthy outlets, have emotional supports, have people in your life spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, yeah. then you're not going to need to chase externally to make your insides feel better with a drink or a drug Got it. or a process addiction okay. or overattach yeah. too much meaning. So isolation, again, in that Rat Park study shows that like it's a form of it. But if you give a rat the option to have like a uh, a party, have a fun time, yeah. have some other outlets going on, right. that's the oversimplified version. Got of it. it. Okay. But attachment theory is what this all is rooted yeah. in. And attachment theory is is having healthy attachments mm -hmm. in your life. Okay. Having healthy outlets in your life so that you're not over attaching too much meaning onto one, right. i.e., a drug or a person or right, something right. like that. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a cool study yeah, 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 with all yeah. the outlets too, yeah. which is why, like, I mean, I see a lot of people in recovery get really into exercise. Absolutely. Something? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just toured a program in Maniunk, a new program called Unity Recovery. Okay. And great. Um, this guy, Robert Ashford, did, um, uh, gotten grants for kids and young adults to, to do yoga. Okay. So it's a yoga studio primarily is their one format. And then they also okay. do recovery management where they have peer recovery supports follow people for the first year or so. Okay. So, yeah. So, adventure-based recovery mm -hmm. um, and my wife's program, Caroline's program at Center for Families, they do a ton of experiential yeah. stuff. I'm a big proponent of, and all of our folks here are a big proponent of looking at nutrition and recovery, looking okay. at working out. Interesting, and yeah. And having healthy outlets. So, when we talk about folks with substance abuse and mm -hmm. people that struggle with addiction, 87% of folks that struggle from addiction also have a secondary mental health issue. Okay. Anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar. Right. All that's treatable. But, okay. But again, like not just medication, but working out, as you right. know, as a runner. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, running is a great outlet yeah. for anxiety reduction. Yeah. Techniques. Running is an amazing outlet to help people uh, feel better. Yeah. And not just like physically feel better, that endorphin. Right. But also about self-care. Then you're thinking about nutrition. Yeah. And so uh, one of our folks in Center City, this new therapist, Troy Jackson, is a certified yoga instructor. Mm -hmm. So our Center City location, Troy's our kind of go-to guy. He also talks up about um, plant-based food. Okay. He, he doesn't prescribe vegan, but he also talks a lot about nutrition in his right. groups. Because right, you right. got to, like, not just put down a drink or a drug. Yeah. But you're also picking up healthier life Healthy, patterns, yeah. healthier life outlet. Exactly, yeah. 
does that make sense? Yes. Um, and then As one... I drink my coffee. I'm sorry. <laughs> one, yeah. um, one question I have, too, I think a lot of people are wondering, especially my older siblings that have kids, is how do you steer kids away from drugs and alcohol? And I know you and Caroline just had a baby. Yep, yep. May? 2000, yep. So almost a year. April, yeah. yeah, April, yeah. okay. Yeah. My mom said April. So no, yeah. it's May. April 26th. <laughs> okay, so got it. Why, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I know that's a main concern. Sure. You know, and... So, so one of our concerns, and we were kidding about, like, how, you know, how do we come to having the kids? Because we yeah. have a genetic predisposition for substance yeah. abuse in my family of origin. Okay. Clearly, I do. So knowing that uh, addiction is in my family of origin is okay. really important. We didn't talk about it when I was a kid. Okay. So one of my goals, um, and it may sound corny, is, like, well, I spent this week going to the dentist. Okay. I don't love going to the dentist, but guess what? I have to go to the dentist. Yeah. And and guess what they talk about? Dental floss. You know, I want to right. talk about mental floss. Okay. Like dental floss. I want to be able to talk about the reduction of stigma around substance abuse and mental health issues, just like going to the dentist. Okay. You know, so yeah. number one is if it's in your family of origin to be able to talk about it openly. Okay. To not be afraid to talk about it and say like, hey, listen, this is in your family of origin. Diabetes, heart condition, right. what have you. So diabetes and heart condition are both in my family of origin. Okay. Knowing that, guess what? I'm looking out for my sugars. Guess what? Right. I look out for my heart. So I, I do certain things at this age to watch out because I want to stick around a long time. Right. So number one is having conversations, having okay. appropriate conversations with kids at an early age. Um, and steering kids around it, that the dare tactic, the scare tactics didn't seem to really stick. Okay. But really having accurate conversations by saying, you know, what do we really want to have kids have as a high school experience or okay. a college experience? Yeah. Um, another big thing I always talk about with kids, uh, is safety and, mm -hmm. and around making sure the kids feel safe. And I always tell parents to have an amnesty card with kids. So if kids are, are in a situation where they don't want to be in, they want to get out of, okay. you know, that they, they can call the parent under any and all conditions and feel like they can get out of the situation, even if it's like an awkward situation okay. to someone's drunk and they don't want to get driven home. So I always tell parents to make sure that they, the kids know that they can call and not get in trouble. Okay. It's more about connection, communication, and reinforcing that they can reach out for help. Okay. Then about a uh, power struggle, power dynamic, I'd like to try to get away from. Right, right, right. So number one, it's communication. Number two, it's connection. Number three, it's learning how to have kids develop and have a bunch of different outlets. And okay. A lot of different interests. Um, and also talking about what they're exposed to and mm -hmm. talking about like social media. Right. Um, and really kind of have an accurate dialogue around mm -hmm. social media because yeah. so many kids think that's what reality is. Right, and it's not. And so yeah. we got to like have kids talk about what they're seeing, what they're getting exposed to on this thing called the internet. Right, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking about the internet, because <laughs> <laughs> before we got started, and I do want to touch on the opiate you know, sure. epidemic and everything, um, which we've been going through, but I also want to touch on like the screen time and sure, internet sure, addiction, sure. because yeah. I don't think there's as much news around that, at least no, yet. No, no, no. So I kind of, I know you give talks about it and everything. Sure. So, um, and I'm not that educated on it. Like I told you before this interview, I've read a couple articles, but sure. I'd love to learn a lot more and how you think it's affecting kids and if it's fueling kids' anxiety and depression and even adults too. Sure. The amount of time we're spending sure. on our screens. Sure. So first off, when it comes to like our initial talks around mm -hmm. the opioid epidemic has gotten the press, has gotten the front press, which I believe our whole field needed to have a real clear yeah. 
kind of agenda point because it's been a real epidemic, but it's been mm-hmm. a substance abuse epidemic. Okay. It's been a process addiction epidemic, meaning all the way through to gambling with the state of Pennsylvania last five years has been yeah. illegal, even down to this process addiction of technology. What's process? So process addiction okay. is basically chasing an external to make your insides feel better. Okay. The process of over-attaching too much meaning onto one element of your life. Okay. The best example the, the old school term was called codependency. Okay. Where people might get codependent and overattached on one relationship. Interesting. Or that's a process addiction. Okay. Or like gambling, where it's not like a chemical that gets released. It is, we see neurologically now. Right. But it's the process of that next high, that next win. Right. And, and the same chemical reaction that goes off in your brain, we're able to see now with gambling, with a win of gambling, okay. is the same chemical reaction that goes off on video games. Wow. And with kids that are getting exposed to video games at such an early age, and their brain chemistry is shifted to this, you know, this free game called Fortnite. I don't know if you've ever heard of this game. It jumped the screens in 2017. This free game in their first year of production made $1.8 billion. Wow. Because you get to certain levels with the game, and then you guess what? You have to pay to play. Okay. So that's how they hook you in for the first free levels. Right. And then you have to pay to get the higher level skins or this higher level thing. And then you have to pay to get this potential like box. You don't know what the box is in, but you might win. Yeah. It's the same kind of reaction, just like gambling. Okay. So we're seeing a huge crossover with video games and to gambling. gambling. Okay. And that's our critical concern. Right. Uh, the video game, particularly Fortnite, jumped the screen, meaning it's now on your palm. And, and again, okay. like down to this, this um, the iPhones, the, the Samsung products, uh, like uh, their, their mobile devices now okay. are playing as quickly as the PS3 Got or it. the computers. So okay. these screens now are all the way down to these little screens in their back pockets. Okay. So screen time. Yeah. <clears throat> when it comes to their actual device time, it's such a hard thing because so many kids have them at fourth, what we're talking yeah. about, fourth and fifth grade. Yeah, They're right. already having their, their iPads, uh, iPads really, and everything yeah. already. So the American Journal of uh, Child Psychiatry came out and said this year that the early exposure of zero to two-year-old brain matter really needs to develop. And so they really recommend uh, child um, infant uh, have no exposure from zero to two. Zero to two, okay. And then two to five, they really want to limit the exposure of uh, screen time at all and really kind of only show like live people. So okay. it's, it's a really important to have really minimal screen time as best you can. When it comes to the, the adolescent brain development and when it comes to video gaming, there's so much that they have that you're right. It's not just social media. It's not just video games. It's okay. not just uh, homework or emails or text messages. Right. It's all those things yeah. that the kids are getting bombarded and bombarded and not yeah. having process time. Right, right. So give you an idea. Like when I went to St. Aloysius Academy, mm-hmm. I would yeah. take a, um, a bus home okay. and I would get home to my parents' house and there would be one phone line that my yeah. two sisters would fight over and I would get home and my one sister would take the one phone line, the landline, okay. into yeah. the closet and call their boyfriends. Yeah. And I'd walk down the street to the kid and I'd play with whoever down the street. Yeah. And the next day I'd go to school and have a whole new day of school and yesterday was yesterday. Yeah. Now today... You have a bad second period. Somebody tweets about it. Somebody posts a picture about it. Yeah. And somebody's kind of locked in that. So certain kids with anxiety and depression 
are replaying some of their day's events and getting stuck and not being able to process time out. And so they get home and they're still getting Instagram messages. They're still getting live video screens. Mm -hmm. They're still getting so much time impacted so they don't have process time. Okay. So kids with anxiety, depression, and ADHD need process time. And that's where kids that are involved in sports and Mm -hmm. activities, that's a great outlet. So I really look at kids that get promoted into... Physical outlets, uh, musical outlets, anything okay. to kind of get them outside of just looking at their screen. Right, for sure. So it's tough because I don't want to come off like as a fuddy-duddyism. I want to avoid sounding like the, that rock and roll music that's going to make you do drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because technology is here. Right. It's how we're talking about the kids, how we're walking through with them. And again, when I talked about the kids and the parents, they need to talk to their kids about what they're seeing on yeah. the screen. Okay. Um. Instagram, uh, social media, Snapchat, all these things are such uh, live action all the time. Right. It needs to be up against the myth of a party or the myth of college or the okay. myth of these events in high yeah. school. But now we're up against the real images. Right. Or sometimes people only highlight reels. They're not going to post yeah. how they felt about themselves on a Sunday morning. They're not going to post right. how they felt negatively about yeah. themselves. They're only posting the, the highlights. The best parts, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So kids see that. Seventh graders, eighth graders are friends, in quotes, with kids that are in college okay. or high school, and they think that's what college is. Yeah. So they really need an accurate dialogue okay. about it. That's the biggest thing. Okay. So dialogue. Mean? Yes. Outlet, sports, and music, and exactly. different activities. And then anything else that like the parents can do, like little things that will well, maybe go a long way. The, well, one thing I say to parents every day, and you kind of mentioned it, is if you want to get your kids off your mm-hmm. cell phones, you need to get off your own cell phone. Okay. So to live by example. Okay. A parent is a thousand school teachers. Kids watch oh, what wow. parents do, what they do every day. To yeah. So if you want to lead by example. Okay. I'm a big proponent of technology-free nights on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And Interesting. literally having technology-free time, technology-free okay. zones. Okay. Maybe having a technology-free zone in the house. Right. So, like, making a living room without the TV, P.S., without okay. any other technology going, just having a free time or a free zone. Right. Uh, having technology-free time during the day that you can just interact and maybe it's dinner time. Yeah. Because, again, like, you know, parents, you, you'll you'll have that to make that per- important call. Right. But all the kid sees is you on your phone. Right. So put yourself in your kid's shoes. Like, all the kid sees is, like, you staring at that screen. Yeah. And they're not seeing what else is happening. Right. Exactly. So eye contact, putting down your phone, okay. being an example. That speaks more volumes than Mike Blanche or some therapist. Right, you know right, I mean? right, right. Your sure. life experience. Of, yeah. And again, parents are a thousand school teachers. Okay. Um, and, and it's how the parent exists with it, the mm-hmm. technology. Definitely, yeah. And parents really need to kind of model that behavior. Yeah. So having technology free time, I think, is Right. I like that way. idea, too. Good. Um, I, I get caught in it. Yeah. Like, oh, at yeah. nighttime, sometimes it's relaxing, like, scroll Instagram, see what's sure. going on, see, you know, I have friends, new babies, whatever. Sure. But then I can tell if I've been on there for a sound, I'm like, it's too much. It's too much. It's right. getting to me a little bit. It's a saturation point. Yeah, yeah, There's only a saturation point of how much. And luckily today, now... Uh, the iPhone in particular mm. will be sending you notifications of how long you're spending on screen time. So I have 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And I've gone over it. I'm like, yeah. oh no, but it's a good reminder. To yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I think, you know, with clients, you know, as, as a therapist, clients aren't, and people in general aren't really great historians. So we say yeah. like, oh, I wasn't on my phone that much. 
But yeah. when you actually pull it up and show, you can actually see now with any Samsung it's product. It's crazy, that, yeah. That you can show, like, I was on this for this long and that for that right. long. So you want to take inventory yeah. of your own participation. For sure. That's all. Last thing I want to talk about is the opiate epidemic. Sure. And... Um, so I'm going to have a link to this NPR podcast I listen uh -huh. to that has a great history on it. Sure, sure, sure. And then um, Dope Sick, I read yep, the book, yep, which yep. is really good because it's so complex. But yep. just want to give the it, – it's I love history, so I love learning about it. So, sure. you know, the opiates have been around since forever. Sure. But then I did the history in the 1800s. It was morphine. Yep. That, you know, soldiers came back from the Civil War, they became addicted, and then – but what I thought was really interesting is that women got really addicted because yep. they would give, you know – Men weren't really supposed to be on, like, they, they were supposed to be more stoic, whereas for women, they gave it out more easily. Sure. And a lot of women got addicted, so then people took note, and heroin was then created exactly. as almost trying to be a solution to morphine. Correct. As we all know, that yep. became a black market drug. Yep. And then a lot of doctors became very fearful to prescribe anything, yep. like in the early 1900s. Correct. But then that fear was relaxed in the 1980s yeah. when this notion of untreated chronic pain yeah. Became, yeah. came up. So then the pharmaceutical companies took note and they started, you know, introducing all types of new um, opiates. And then the one um, in 1996, the Sackler family had Purdue Pharmaceutical and they came out with Oxycontin, Correct. which was the gateway to this huge game, epidemic. Game yeah. yeah. And there's crazy statistics, too, that yeah. I was reading about sure, with do. sales, yeah. too. Yeah. So in 1995, um, they had $360 million in sales, and that jumped to $1.3 billion in 1998, which yeah. is just insane. Insane. Yeah. And yeah. they, the way they were marketing it was kind of incredible too. Right. That, you know, they said that because it lasted from 12, from like 8 a.m., 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., you couldn't get addicted. Right. And, but there's no studies that said that. There, there here's the, <laughs> there was one anecdotal person that alluded to a, an editorial piece in, in a research study. And that was it. They took that and said yeah. it's researched. Right. Uh, and they and they blew this uh, one line in a research editorial right. that this one doc didn't think it was addictive and it yeah. was too early to tell. Right. And that's what blew this whole industry up is yeah. they took that as quote unquote research and started marketing saying it's not re it's not research that it's addictive. Clearly right. everybody knew it was addictive. Yeah. From and your back history was great that yeah. from morphine was the original mm -hmm. to heroin uh, to then uh, Percocets came yeah. on the market and were on the market for a long time, but it was in the mid nineties. Like when I first started working in the field okay. at Delaware County Hospital and yeah, medical yeah. acute detox, we would see folks come in with heroin addiction all the time. Yeah. But it was at the late 90s when I was working residential programs and detoxes where we saw an uptake of people coming in for Oxycontin. Okay. Oxycontin had been around since the 90s and really took off underneath uh, in the U.S. And it wasn't until the last five years is right. really with fentanyl, carfentanil, and the kids that got more addicted to multiple substances, including heroin, because it's cheaper. Right. That's the process. Okay. So other substances... Uh, uh, Percocets and, and Oxycontin are, are way more expensive, yeah. so kids would flip to heroin. Uh, heroin, which was cut with fentanyl. Fentanyl is a much cheaper product, okay. and kids were overdosing. And that was we, in Kensington now, too? This was all over. So it's, all, okay. it's not just Kensington or yeah. Philadelphia. It really outreached all Philadelphia region okay. uh, last seven to ten years, and actually across the state and across the right. U.S. Yeah. The numbers of overdoses and accidental overdoses, uh, we lost more in 2016 than we did in the whole Vietnam War. Wow. You know, when the, when the amount of overdoses occurred 
and 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 it's leveled off since then. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean the numbers have gotten better. Yeah. That means every year we're losing more and more folks to the substance abuse uh, when it comes to heroin overdose and fentanyl, particularly. So they came out with drugs like Narcan. They've come out with drugs to help, uh, uh, like Suboxone or, or medication-assisted therapies to help with some of this. But the truth is we still need a lot of information out there to families and individuals to talk through this opiate epidemic. Okay. And the number one is what happened was a lot of people were over-prescribed medications. Okay. And uh, a lot of kids were uh, seen and taken these meds through people's own pharmacies at home. So. Okay. Um, what I tell parents, any chance I can get, if, mm -hmm. if parents are listening, to go through your own medicine cabinets yeah. and look and see what's in your own medicine cabinet. Make sure you don't have any leftover prescriptions for anything uh, to get rid of them safely. Uh, there's pharmaceutical drops uh, that you can drop off so that it's not in your home. Okay. You know, a lot of kids, uh, you know, mischievous kids will go through parents' uh, uh, medicine cabinets to see what's in there, to see what it's like, just, mm -hmm. just to be curious. But again, these these substances are very addictive and, mm. and easily addictive. So we want to get them out of the kids' reach okay. really, really yeah. early on. Does For sure, yes. Yeah. Um, and then one thing we also talked about too mm -hmm. is the fact that it's you know obviously been a horrible epidemic. Sure. But you said there's also chances for recovery too because I think it is. Let me let me backtrack and say yeah. this. You know, when I give these prevention talks, at mm -hmm. sixth grade centers, seventh grade centers, through high schools, I always start by asking how many people in here know somebody that's been affected by drugs or alcohol? Yeah. Nine times out of 10, every hand gets raised. Right. And then I ask how many people know somebody that's passed away from this? And, mm -hmm. and about 80% of the room raised their hand. And mm -hmm. these kids are in high school, middle school, and so it's impacted the Philadelphia region. Right. My next question though is as important. And my question is how many people in here know somebody in recovery that's mm -hmm. turned their life around? Yeah. And nowadays, more and more hands are going up. Oh, and I nice. want people to hear and see that, yes, the devastation of addiction really exists. But what's not talked about is people can recover. Mm. There are programs, there are people that successfully do recovery, that, that do turn their life around, that are fully engaged. And I'm not, you know, uh, the ex, ex, exception to the rule. Mm. I want to be the expectation. Okay. that I want to have people know that people can turn their lives around and have had uh, a tough addi uh, addiction to not just, and by the way, we talked earlier and I want to get this across at the end. It's not just the opiate epidemic. More people are dying from liver disease created by cirrhosis oh, wow. liver, created by alcoholism. So the numbers of alcoholism are up uh, dramatically two times in the last 10 years. So when it comes to the numbers of alcoholism, yeah. marijuana, the misinformation around marijuana, the right. addictive nature of marijuana, how yeah. complex that topic is, I can talk about that if you want at some point. Yeah. But the short version is so many people are getting addicted, so many people are getting well, and so many people okay. can be in a long-term recovery process. Mm. And again, Philadelphia region, from a collegiate recovery standpoint, mm -hmm. there are programs at colleges, at Drexel University, there's a Haven that's a sober uh, campus on Drexel University's campus, okay. uh, RAM Recovery here at Westchester University. Um, there are weekly meetings on Villanova University's campus, so young adults are getting clean and sober, staying okay. clean and sober fully engaging in life, and there are professional tracks like Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers that are professional programs that look out for lawyers and politicians mm -hmm. to doctors. So there's so many professional people uh, that are staying long-term in recovery, okay. but I can't get it across enough that people are quietly living their lives successful mm -hmm. without a drink or drug for a long, long time. Okay. 
the, the anonymous nature of recovery, sometimes the stigma still existed, and, and part of the humility of getting sober helps people to, to remain anonymous. Okay. But some people, like nowadays, are opening up about the recovery mm-hmm. story to let people know they can change. Right. They can get sober. Definitely, yeah. So that's part of the reason why that's I agreed great. to do this podcast is yeah. to let people know that, you know, I might own and, and be a founder of a program called Ethos, or I mm-hmm. might want to turn this around and be a person in recovery. Yeah. But I also want to let people know that, yeah, I've had an addiction, too. And mm-hmm. I'm able to live with it and live in long-term recovery. Right. And do a couple of things on a weekly basis to kind of keep me on path. Definitely. So, yeah. That's great. Thanks, so Mike. I appreciate that. And so congrats on 26 to, years, too. Thank you. I yeah. That, and yeah. I like when people share their stories, like on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say how many years. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's a good inspiration to, yeah, to yeah, yeah. other people. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks so much for done. the opportunity. Yeah. I really appreciate it. High five. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Right, that was thanks. so fun. Good. That was perfect. Hi, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to High Five Success Stories. To learn more about the podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at High Five Success. Or on Facebook, you can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Hayden. Or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephayden.com. And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.